knowledge, we dispel fear. And so I started to learn about the sharks and the more research I did, the more I realized how little we have to fear of them and how much they have to fear from us. Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. Our guest on the podcast today is the incredibly inspiring Paul DeGelder. Have you come across Paul's story? If not, tune in and strap in for the ride. Paul was a Navy clearance diver with a very interesting past who unfortunately in 2009 had an incident with a bull shark in Sydney Harbour that nearly lost his life. He really did think he was going to die. But lo and behold, the will, grit and determination of this man meant he has gone on to have such a remarkable career in the years afterwards. He went back to the Navy. He became a remarkable motivational public speaker. He still is, which then led to him becoming an author and now being a host on Discovery Channel's Shark Week. He's an ambassador for a range of brilliant projects. But at the core of what it is that he is out there talking about is the fact that we need sharks. A healthy ocean needs sharks. And when you find out just how devastating the impact, the toll that we as humans are having on the population of these critically important species, you get fired up. And that's exactly what Paul has gone on to become, a leading voice for that and also for being a plant-based, incredibly strong and powerful athlete. The guy's amazing. Go and Google him if you haven't. There's lots of podcasts out there and lots of examples of him speaking where he tells the story in detail of the incident. There's even footage online where you can watch uh, security camera footage of the attack taking place. So I sort of paid attention to not really go and talk about the stuff that I knew he was talking about a bunch before. So we have a, a good old meandering conversation. He was only in Sydney for a short time. We scrambled. He came to Manly. We sat down in an apartment generously organized by a previous podcast guest, Julia Wheeler, and we recorded a podcast. There's a bit of bad audio in the background because it's just two blokes having a chat in front of a GoPro with the old Zoom recording away, but I think you'll find this story fascinating regardless. So thank you, Paul, for all that you do for Planet Ocean and the sharks that need so much protection. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast. Well, very thrilled to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today, Paul DeGelder. How are you, mate? I'm a little tired, man. I just got out of the water, uh, went on a dive to do a photo shoot. You know what it's like when you go diving. You're in the ocean and you're using every muscle in your body. And as soon as you get out, you're just sapped. And so we went and ate afterwards. And I'm just, now it's like, ah, oh, coma. <laughs> you just want to curl up somewhere warm in the sun and just go to sleep. <laughs> Well, hopefully the podcast, after 45 minutes, you'll be uh, finding a nice little spot in the sun for nah, a nap. Not going to happen, happen, mate. Nah, <laughs> it never stops. You've only got a few days or five days left in the country, then back to LA or Florida? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, Neptune Island's first. Uh, so I've been in Australia for nearly three months filming for Discovery Channel. And uh, the second block of the second shoot to go, 
So we're going to head down to the Neptune Islands, uh, introducing Bob, uh, sorry, Robert Irwin to Great White Sharks. Oh, wow. Uh, so down there with Rodney Fox Expeditions, do some cage diving, see the big super girls that are down there this time of year, which is going to be amazing. Those sharks are so big. You just, you can't fathom it until you see them. Uh, so a week down there and then straight off to Jupiter, Florida to go and film some more sharks, hammerheads, tigers, bull sharks, whatever else turns up. And then finally back home to my pup. Oh, who you must miss very dearly. Yeah, after three months, and he's not even going to know who I am. Yeah. So, Paul, I'm really interested. Um, when did the ocean really emerge for you as something greater, special? When did it really grab a hold of you, the ocean? Before I even knew. Um, <laughs> my first swimming lesson was at two weeks old. Uh, so my dad was a cop and also a swimming instructor. And so he took me down to the beach. We lived in Mornington Peninsula, a beautiful little coastal town down on the um, uh, uh, Victorian coast. I can't remember the name of the bay now. Um, and so we were, I was out in the ocean from a very, very young age. Uh, I grew up spearfishing with my grandfather. And then we moved away at about 10 years old when I was 10 to Canberra. As far away from the ocean as you can almost yeah, be in Australia. Yeah. And that's when things started to go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every time I move away from the ocean, things just go awry. Yeah. So that's now a... I just, I never move far from the ocean. Wherever I am, it has to be near the ocean. Even in LA, where I don't go in the water because it's disgusting, at least I know it's there. You can feel the energy and you know there's this huge expanse where there's just no people and it's just open. Obviously, fast forwarding now to 2021, and you're a remarkable conservationist and communicator for the ocean. Back when you think to that relationship you had with it then, did you ever, could you ever have forecast that you'd step into this role of such a profound conservationist? Uh, I, I dreamed of it uh, because I grew up watching... Uh, Albie Mangles and the Leyland mm. Brothers and Ron and Valerie Taylor and all those uh, amazing Australians that were out there exploring the country and exploring the world and breaking ground on things that no one had ever done before like Ron and Val Valerie swimming with great white sharks and so those guys were my heroes growing up but then you know as you get a little bit older um, you start to forget about that because you're going through your teenage years and hormones and getting into trouble and there was no ocean and it was Canberra so there just wasn't a lot to do and so I got a bit distracted with growing up um, and it wasn't until I was just lost at 21 trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life that that sort of desire for adventure came back. It didn't come back straight away in the form of the ocean. It came back in the form of joining the military. Yeah, joining the army. Um, and it wasn't really something I wanted to do. I'd never even thought about it. But I tried so many things already. Um, I got kicked out of home at 17. And so it took me a while to find my feet. And I ended up working in hospitality, which uh, is not a very healthy environment. Mm. And I was um, involved in some, some drug aspects as well. Uh, smoking marijuana, selling marijuana. And, and I was about to hit 21 and I went to a party and got jumped by 20 guys. And I just, I went home that night and I just thought, yeah, I can't live like this. I'm going to be dead or in jail by the time I'm 23. And I knew about, you know, I still had these amazing people in my mind. but And I so badly wanted to be a part of this incredible world I knew about. But I didn't know how to escape Canberra. And so I just 
decided to remove myself from this environment that I'd become a product of threw everything into a tiny little car I had no license for and drove 12 hours north to this magical place called Briz Vegas <laughs> and started again. But, uh, you know, I, I tried a few things there. I was working behind a bar in a strip club, became a rapper, uh, thought I'd found my calling there, opened for Snoop Dogg, but not a lot of money and white rappers in Brisbane in 1998. <laughs> and so as the band does, as bands do, the band broke up and I was just lost again and it wasn't until I thought about my two younger brothers who had joined the army that I thought you know maybe that's the path that I should take because I'm clearly not responsible enough to be in charge of my own life so maybe I'll just hand it over to someone else for a little while and see what happens did it work for you immediately like did you really appreciate the boundaries and the setting no not (laughs) dude I've been fighting against discipline my entire life and only to be surrounded by the most disciplined crazy people on the planet and it was no fun at all. I hated it. There was, but yeah, I, I, there were things I did enjoy. You know, I didn't like the discipline. I didn't like having to get up and make your bed and scrape half your face off trying to shave and clean everything within 15 minutes. I didn't like being on the parade ground in the hot New South Wales country sun. But I did like throwing grenades. I did like shooting machine guns. And so... I decided to change my approach to the situation. So instead of trying to change my circumstances and sort of run away and start again like I had before, I tried to change my perception on the situation. And I I tried to focus on the things that I did enjoy and just get through the other stuff that I didn't. And you know, there was time frames, you know, basic training was 12 weeks and then infantry employment training was another 12 weeks so I knew that there was finite time and then eventually I'd get to the army battalion and maybe things would be better but just through that simple change of mindset I actually started to enjoy it and you know I was smoking a lot I was smoking a lot of marijuana I was drinking a lot before I joined can't do a lot of that stuff when you're in basic training in the army so my physicality from being a state swimmer as a young man actually came back And I started to find self-confidence in that. And I started to be able to work so hard in every aspect that we were training and that I could actually help other people as well. And I got a lot of fulfillment in that. And so I built my self-confidence, I built my opinion of myself and I built my physical stature as well. And so I clinged onto that and it just, it really gave me the confidence to get through everything. Mm. And then in 2005, the opportunity came to dive in literally to become uh, a Navy clearance diver. What mm. was the circumstances surrounding when that opportunity emerged and was it an immediate sensation or a feeling that you had to do that or you wanted to do that? It, it wasn't really an opportunity. Okay. It, was, it was a lot of work actually mm. to try and just transfer from the Army to the Navy because no one knew how to do it. And it's not like the army wants to give its soldiers away to the Navy. And so I had to work out how to do everything. I had to fill in the paperwork. It took 12 months just to get the paperwork across to get approved for the first phase of the course. And I was just really, I was sick of being out in the bush, just doing the same exercises all the time, dirty and smelly, sleeping in holes you've dug yourself and being out in the rain and getting bugs biting you. It was just, I was just totally over it after four years. And so I I thought, I heard about these guys called the clearance divers and I thought they sound pretty cool. Maybe I'll go and try and do that. You know, this is, this is a group of people that other people in my industry look up to. 
And so I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't mind that. I don't, I don't really want to be in the bush anymore. I could have tried out for the SAS or the commandos, but I just needed something totally different. And so I tried out for clearance divers. The first phase is called ship's divers, simply learning how to scuba dive and then search for bombs. And that's about a three week course. Passed that by the skin of my teeth because I'd never scuba dived in my life. I'd never searched for bombs underwater and I had no idea how to be in the Navy. And so fortunately passed that course and then applied to go on selection course for clearance divers. And that was 10 days of pure anguish. But at the end, when you pass, you know, I, I, you have to go into some of these things with the mindset that I'm either going to pass or they're going to kill me. And so that was it. That was, I'm either going to die or they're going to pass me. I am not going back to the army. I will not go back to my battalion as a failure. And so fortunately I passed, um, 70% of the course didn't pass. I lost about 10 kilos, but you know, walking into that, uh, room with all the Navy clearance diver bosses there and sitting down nervous as hell waiting for your results. And they give you an A pass. And I could feel the, the tears welling up in my eyes and I was trying to hold them back in front of these big tough men. And I was just like ready to walk out and they're like, Hey, wait, 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 where are you going? Come and give us a handshake, mate. I walked out. I was like, ah, oh, trying to hold back the tears of joy. Um, and then, so after that, you go on to 47 weeks of basic training, learning how to be a clearance diver. Wow. Yeah. I remember I listened to a podcast um, and learning about some of the activities that you had to do in that role. Perhaps it was during the training, but I mean, you obviously had this relationship with the ocean, the love for the ocean, but that sounds like that was really on friendly terms. Suddenly you had to go out and interact with the ocean on terms that weren't of your choosing and some of the experiences like in Sydney Harbour swimming across the harbour in the middle of the night I mean give us a bit of a glimpse into just some of the activities yeah. that you were having to do as part of that role yeah um, so the selection process over 10 days is very little sleep uh, like you said swimming across the harbour in the middle of the night so you, all the trainees line out your link arms and you've got your overalls on and a pair of fins and you swim from Balmoral to Manly and then back and it takes about five or six hours and then you might get a couple of hours sleep then you run a half marathon and then you're doing sand sprints and beach pt uh, pulling boats through the harbor in the middle of the night kayaking against the tide for eight hours carrying the, the sorry not even kayaks canoes filled up with uh 20 kilo water jerrys 20 liter water jerrys uh up climbing up carrying those up through the bush to lighthouses to do reconnaissance and then back down and then kayaking back home uh, so it's, it's a lot of work, first aid stands, pack marches, mind games, breath hold. Um, and then you, when you actually get onto the basic course, you've got to do things like, uh, what we call 2000 yarders. And this is where you get your endurance swimming up. So, uh, practicing to do long range reconnaissance swimming on pure oxygen rebreathers underwater, middle of the night, swimming for anywhere up to three hours, um, into beaches, doing reconnaissance, uh, setting up, um, surveys to make sure that there's no obstructions for when the ships come in mixed gas deep mixed gas rebreather diving on mines um, diving on multiple sets of bombs and explosives in water so murky you can't you literally can't see your hand in front of your face sometimes i just close my eyes because it's just easier to see darkness than the, the brown murk and you just have to feel out all the bombs and you got you know four kilos worth of plastic explosives and detonators on you and you've got to find the bombs and pack them all all in pitch blackness so it takes it takes a lot of relying on your training and just slow deep breathing relaxing trusting in the training just to get through it and i've seen you know some guys come in to try and do it and they're fine by a day 
As soon as you put them in the water by night, that's it, Polaris to the surface, call it quits straight away. So it, it takes a lot of self-confidence and belief to just get through the training. And I heard as well that all this time, you were terrified of sharks. I mean, yeah. I'm sure the entire <laughs> team was, right? I mean, you're out there in high-risk situations, murky water in yeah. a known shark habitat, and you're scared. How yeah. would you have put that fear aside during those those moments where it really started to impact you? Well, I was the only idiot that actually told the guys. No one else said it. I said it, and so I was turning up to work with pictures of great white shark sharks stuck on my locker with a guy saying, oh, we saw that now, out in the harbour the other day. And I was like, so you, got a bit, you got a bit bullied yeah. and because yeah. you expressed all, your fear of yeah. sharks. So. All, all in jest. So I'm sure everyone, you know, we got bumped in the middle of the night and you just go, ah, that was just a log. Surely. Wow. <laughs> so this, like you can't do anything about it. If you're going to fulfill this role, then you have to put all of your fears to the back of your mind and you just have to focus on the job, focus on the mission, get through that, focus on the mind. Because it's so complicated, the things you have to do. The diving is just a way to get to the job. And then you've got to do the job. And so everything else comes after that. And so sharks, like as much as I was terrified of them, leave that on the boat. Hmm. 2009 is the incident. I'm not uh, that concerned whether we go into detail because I know you've told the story so often as a obviously motivational speaker and people who personally have been on the media so much talking about it. But needless to say, that was the moment that your life changed. Yeah, that was a shit day at work. <laughs> getting, getting attacked and eaten alive by your worst nightmare yeah it's not a good way to start the day yeah look it's up to you what do you want to talk about it but i mean the question i suppose i had is now you've got such a, a, a deeper understanding of shark and shark behavior what do you think was happening um that day sorry i don't know what happened yeah, there, folks um what do you think happened in that day in that, in that instance in terms of the shark and the shark's behavior do you have a thought look we we knew there was bull sharks in sydney harbour mm. we'd heard about it for years none of us had really seen one and so we'd been working in that area around woolamaloo and garden island for decades long before i came there and no one had been attacked mm. and so you just rely on the numbers mm. it's oh, it never happened before what's the chances of it happening now and then it happens and you know, I'd never seen a large dangerous shark except for on Shark Week. Mm. And so I, I couldn't even process what I was seeing, uh, let alone feeling. And so I found out later that the police had pulled a body out from underneath the finger wharf at Woolloomooloo the day before. And so in hindsight, I guess it could have been attracted to the smell of that. Um, also, you know, I'm in the murky water flapping around on the surface in a black wetsuit, looking like an injured seal, looking like an easy target. Mm. And, you know, as we know, sharks don't have hands. They can't come up and feel you and go, oh, what's that? They come up and they go, and they bite. And it's just very unfortunate that we're such a delicate species that all it takes is one tooth in the wrong spot, sever an artery and you're dead. And a lot of people don't like to use the word shark attack. They like to use shark interaction or shark investigatory bite. It was an attack. This one specifically was very much an attack because it grabbed me and it didn't let go. And it started to tear me apart as if it would its food. And the pain is just indescribable and you can't do anything about it. And you can actually watch the attack on YouTube. Uh, it was all being recorded for, for the Navy exercise that we were doing. And um, eight seconds to change your life. 
You know? And when you are going through something as painful as that and you can't stop it, there is nothing you can do. You just have to bear it. I just thought I was going to die. I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going home today. This is it. I'm going to die right now. But fortunately, I didn't. You know, the shark bit all the way through my hamstring, ripped out my hamstring from the back of my leg, ripped off my hand in the same bite. And because I had my wetsuit on, it made me buoyant. I popped to the surface realizing I'm not dead and thought, shit, I better get out of here before it comes back. And I started to swim and took a stroke and I saw my hand was gone. And so I'm swimming back to the boat, one arm out of the water, trying to stem the bleeding, not knowing that my leg was pumping out blood. I'm swimming through a pool of my own blood. And thankfully I had three of my teammates in the safety boat gunning it towards me. And they pulled me out of the water and, and rendered first aid and kept me alive until the paramedics could get there. What's it been like um, watching and interacting bull sharks since that experience? I'm imagining there was a huge fear curve to get over to get back yeah. in the water. But to, what, what's your relationship with the bull shark now? It's really good now, actually. Um, I've had the opportunity. You know, I, I, I really wasn't interested in being involved with sharks whatsoever after the attack. All I wanted to do was get back to work. That was my goal because I didn't have anything else. You know, I didn't have a great education to fall back on. I didn't have any money. I didn't have, have like uh, qualifications, nothing. And so I thought if I give in now and don't chase after this job that I love so much, then I'm gonna have no value and no purpose. And that's what gets us up out of bed every day, right? You know, we have full lives. We've got things to do. We've got dogs to walk, jobs to go to, kids to look after, sports, friends. I needed to just know that I could still have some value and purpose because I was looking at losing my whole career. And so that fear actually can be a, a powerful motivator. And that motivated me to train my absolute ass off just to prove to the Navy that I could still do this job. Maybe not as a deployable uh, war zone clearance diver, but I could definitely go and teach at the dive school. And so I just wanted to do that. And the sharks came much later. And I think it was because I told the media, obviously it was a huge uh, topic of discussion in the media when it happened first person in Sydney Harbour to get attacked in 60 years. And so the media started coming to me to ask for my opinion on other shark interactions because I never blame the shark. You know, it's just a shark doing its thing. I, you know, I, you can't choose a dangerous life. Bombs and jumping out of planes and helicopters and dangerous diving and riding motorcycles and shooting guns and expect that nothing's going to go wrong. And so, okay, I accept responsibility for the dangerous life I chose. So it's not the shark's fault. And so because of that, I think that the media was very curious to see my aspect on other shark interactions. And so out of the desire to not look like a dumbass, uh, I started to learn about sharks so that I could give a, an educated opinion instead of just my own opinion, which was previously, let's kill them all. Uh, <laughs> and then we could swim in the ocean and we don't have to worry about them. I didn't understand. I just thought that was the simple way, kill them. What do they do? Nothing. They just bite us. And so through knowledge, we dispel fear. And so I started to learn about the sharks and the more research I did, the more I realized how little we have to fear of them and how much they have to fear from us. And that shifted my whole perspective. And I realized that these sharks are the underdogs and my military service was about standing up for people that can't stand up for themselves or speak up for them because they don't have a voice. And so now I just see it as a shift of my service. So instead of people, now I'm speaking up for an animal that doesn't have its own voice.
because no one is, is listening to them. You know, we're just slaughtering them at an unprecedented rate that is unmaintainable, it's unsustainable, and these animals keep our oceans healthy. And so we're on a one-way track to not destroying the sharks. The sharks will eventually be fine. We're destroying ourselves. And so it's not just the sharks I'm standing up for. It's humankind as a species as well, because we're not doing enough. The leaders aren't doing enough and we're going to drive ourselves into the graves. What a huge journey to have gone, like you said there, from someone who previous attitude might have been sharks, you know, they just you know, corrupting my ability to go and enjoy the ocean freely and without any fear and concern to now being so eloquent in this realisation of how fragile the ocean is. I mean, that is a pretty remarkable thing to take place in the space of what, say, seven or eight years. Yeah, it's a, it's a journey of growth and that comes through change. And as we know, a lot of people don't like change because it's uncomfortable, but uncomfortable is where we grow. And I feel like my whole life, the whole journey of everything I went through, all the trials and tribulations, getting bullied all through school, self-harming, um, going through the drugs, getting kicked out of home, moving cities, like joining that, all of that is training to teach me that change is a good thing. No matter how drastic it is, if you utilize that change as an opportunity to grow, then you will become a bigger and better person. And that's the whole point of life. Mm. And so I just, I don't see the shark attack as something horrible. I just see it as something that happened in my life that was putting me on a trajectory that I needed to be on. And when the universe is speaking, we need to listen and we need to embrace change and embrace the opportunity to grow no matter how uncomfortable it is because that's what being a human being is supposed to be. I know that um, you know, a mantra that you, you channel a lot you know, in your book and in your, um, in your messaging, that's improvise, adapt and respond, which is obviously a huge... Improvise, adapt and overcome. Overcome. Improvise, adapt and overcome. Um, how can that then be, I suppose, channeled into this realisation of the absolute crisis that we face with the ocean, with the fragility of our planet? Do you sort of look and see, well, how can humanity start to channel... The, that mantra, mm. improvise, adapt, and overcome. It seems like there might be some similarities there. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the problem is that it's coming down to us as civilians and the population to have to do that ourselves because the governments aren't doing it for us. They're not helping us be the guardians of this planet because they're so focused on money and helping out their mates in the mining industry and the animal agriculture that they're just driving the stake deeper and deeper. And so we, as the civilian population, have to be able to improvise and create ways of uh, techniques and technologies of these renewable energies, even though there seems to be a war on these renewable energies that the governments don't want to embrace, we need to adapt. You know, we need to improvise these new ways to live and exist. We need to adapt to the lifestyles that we've chosen because the, the climate change is real, it's happening. Even the, the Queensland government, I was just looking on their website yesterday, they have a whole page on climate change. None of it is about how we're going to stop it, how we're going to reverse it. All they have is how we're going to adapt to it, which is a very negative and pessimistic way of looking at it. But it's also true because we're on a trajectory, we need to be able to adapt to it. And we need to use that adaption to help shift the tide so that we can limit what is happening. And we're going to have to overcome a lot during that. We're going to have to overcome moving away from you know, our, 
our fossil fuels that we rely so heavily on. We're going to have to overcome rising temperatures in the oceans and droughts and fires and hotter climates because that's just the way that it's going to be. It's going to get worse before it's going to get better if it gets better at all. And that's going to come up to us. And this is where, you know, a big part of that overcome piece um, could have been encapsulated. We had on the podcast recently, Tim Flannery, and he was sort of saying that each year, each moment where there's this inaction, we lose time, which then necessitates this big approach, which is about overcome, which is starting to draw down carbon. Every year that we fail to act means we're going to need to start to draw down gigatons and gigatons of carbon to keep us in that fragile temperature band um, to avoid just absolute devastation. All the while, while they're continuing to tear down the forests and destroy the ocean, which is our biggest carbon um, sequester as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard to stay positive sometimes, but you know, you got to look at the good people like yourself and good people like, um, Sean O and, um, Jimmy Halfcard and you know, the alley from Seaspiracy trying to bring awareness about all of the things that we're doing and what we can do to change. Mm. With OIO, um, you know, our focus now really is on innovation and how supporting startups can really start to take the focus away from, we know that there's these problems that exist. Sure, we need more awareness and more education, but if we know the problems exist, then what are the barriers to rapidly accelerating solutions? So really in that... Governments. (laughs) (laughs) But looking at maybe specifically at technology because you know, with your prosthetic limbs you've obviously had a really intimate relationship with a part of science a mm. part of technology which is designed to obviously make lives easier to live so how do you see i suppose your relationship with technology and how through that you can see how with the right support with the right framework people can do remarkable things to overcome all sorts of barriers yeah absolutely if I, someone who you know, used to rely on his physicality for everything, you know, anything the military asked me to do, I had to be able to do. And now I can't do a lot of that stuff. So I've had to, you know, once again, improvise, adapt and overcome. But fortunately I have the, the, the tools, you know, the greatest prosthetics in the world uh, to help me in doing that. I'm not as fast as I used to be. I, don't, I can't run as far or as fast as I used to be able to. There's little things that I can't do. But that doesn't mean you stop trying. And people, you know, people want to help me often. But if they always help me, then I'll never learn to do it myself. Utilizing these correct tools. And the, through just learning how to use my body again, going into the gym, learning how to do push-ups with one hand and squats with one leg, you, know, you learn that there is no obstacle so great that you can't go over it, around it, or straight through it with the right tools. And we have these tools and the development of these tools to help us overcome all the, the climate change and the adversity we're facing in the environment. But mostly that right tool away from technology is simply the right mindset. Mm-hmm. The belief in each other, the faith in each other, the, the hard work that each people or each person or each organization will do, bringing them all together to make a huge difference because we can't do it alone. You know, change comes through many people doing small things consistently. Mm. And so that's what we need to keep doing. And, and through doing that, we can change the government policies. Now, you know, focusing on sharks, we have people like um, 
shark allies that actually go into the governments and create new legislation to stop shark finning, to stop the import and export like they have just done in the UK. And so organizations like that, people like you and your organization, they're vitally important. They need to get all the support that they can because you're not just doing it for the environment. I think that's the misconception. You're doing it for the people that are going to die, which is all of us. So true. On to some of those um, technologies to mitigate and minimise those negative interactions between humans and sharks. We've been quite privy to a few of those. We're, we're chummy with Andre and the team at Envoy, Shark Carl, and really fond of some of these innovations, particularly ones like Shark Safe Barrier, South African innovation that biomimicry resembles kelp forests with magnets to um, prevent some sharks coming into certain regions, Ocean Guardian, obviously drone hover technology. Are there any of those though or other technologies that you've come across in recent times that you just think, gosh, that's incredible, like that makes so much sense or what is it gonna take to get that to scale? Yeah, just simple things like what they implemented in uh, South Africa with the shark spotters. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny they had that big Cardno report where the government invested six, $16 million into um, non, non, what's the word for it? Non, um, non-lethal. Non-lethal um, shark deterrence mm. or mitigation policies and technologies. And I think all that money was gone in a year and they spent most of it on helicopter fuel. And the top, the top recommendations from that report were ignored. And they continued with the drum lines and the shark nets. And fortunately now, New South Wales is implementing the smart drum lines. And I've worked with the guys at DPI um, to go and, uh, and actually use these smart drum lines and collect the great whites and you know, put the acoustic tags inside them and, and transport them and let them go. And that's great. As long as it's, as long as it's watched and monitored and the sharks are being looked after and not left out there on the lines like they have in the past, mm. shark nets need to come out. That's, they don't do anything except kill everything. They're ridiculous. They don't protect anyone. Talking to Vic Pettimores from um, the Primary Industries, he says himself, most of the sharks are found on the inside of the net. Mm. So how, who are they protecting? So they need to come out. But, you know, the drone technology, monitoring from above, uh, the, the shark, the what is it called? It used to be called Shark Shield, the Ocean Guardian. Ocean Guardian. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know about these shark bands things or like... They, they asked me and um, Andy from Shark Week to promote it. And we're like, oh, all right, yeah, sure, send us some. We'll test it out. Didn't yeah. go so well. <laughs> <laughs> they, they wouldn't even send them to us. Right. Um, yeah. So look, there's other, there's other things. Craig Moss uh, out in WA with his shark barrier. Mm. Um, like you said, the, the kelp forest, I've worked with Dr. Craig O'Connell, where he uses uh, weighted PVC pipes on strings with magnets. And we use them in the Bahamas with bull sharks, you know, renownedly the most aggressive animal in the world we've got bait at night in hunting time on the other side of these pvc pipes wouldn't come in Hmm. they wouldn't pass it so why is it so simple yet not implemented and the the money that they would save from hiring these contractors continuously to monitor these drum lines and shark nets could just go into divers maintenance of the barrier and they're non-invasive they'll protect human lives and ocean lives so i don't I don't, I can't fathom it. I don't understand why they just don't implement this stuff. Mm. Nature so often has the answer. Uh, it's just a matter of watching, observing and listening. What do you think is going to happen? So just in this recent time, we're, um, we're in May 2021 and where we are now in Manly, 
Northern Beaches Council and Waverley Council both voted recently to say, let's extract the shark nets from this part of the coastline. Have you come across any other parts of the world where there's been the successful removal of shark nets? I mean, I'm so conscious that many people in our community will be greatly supportive of this, but I'm just really worried to see what happens with the media and politics and how it skews and how it goes. Have you seen any instances where communities have embraced the removal of shark nets? No, I've, I've never actually been privy to anywhere that's removed them. Mm. Um, I don't really know of many places that actually have them. Uh, <laughs> Very <laughs> archaic technologies. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in Brazil, they were having a, a, a horrible problem with bull sharks in a place called Recife. And it basically came down to humans created the problem. Mm. Yeah, they were doing a lot of construction on the riverways and the canals and that drove the bull sharks out of their home in the waterways and they started heading around to the popular beaches and biting people. And so one of the, the scientists out there started trialing capture and transport and we copied his technique on Great Keppel Island, caught a uh, tiger shark and a pig eye shark, uh, tagged them, transported them out to sea, let them go. And we could actually see them not return for many, many months to that part of the beach. And so there's a great technology there to just replace the, the shark nets but no I don't, really, I don't really know of any stories I know that um, uh, there's a little island in, off the coast of Africa French island I'm forgetting Reunion the, Reunion Island yep. where I, I'm pretty sure they're just they feel like they're under assault mm. and they just don't feel like there's any other course of action for them to stop the sharks and mm. so um, hopefully with new technologies emerging you know they'll be able to keep their surfers and their swimmers safe because it's it's pretty bad out there I suppose it just sort of opens up this next tranche of the conversation, which is just about the education and the awareness and channeling media and communications, because with an informed community and a community which understands that it's not about saving the shark as much as it is about saving humanity, mm. your role as a communicator in this space and the opportunities that come your way, like, do you fully believe that is the ticket to this golden vision of the future where sharks and humans can live in harmony is it about media and communications and education uh it's about education and i think seaspiracy um even though it might have been a little sensationalized did a wonderful job at that and as much as we've been talking about drum lines and shark mitigation policies that is like a tiny speck of destruction compared to what the fishing industries are doing and that is really like people ask me all the time what is the one thing that a normal person can do to help but they don't want to hear it mm. you got to stop eating fish we got to stop consuming the ocean the most most sharks are dying because of our consumption of seafood whether it be shark fin soup whether it be flake here in australia i grew up eating it like I, i'm no angel you know i've been i i don't eat animal products anymore i haven't for years but I was responsible for it for a very long time. And so I would never hold it against someone for doing that. But like we were talking about earlier, there's no reason not to embrace change. It's an opportunity for us to grow, to move away from the archaic and destructive patterns that we have had in the past, such as eating uh, commercially caught fish. That is the biggest problem in the oceans today. People supporting an industry that is killing it. Mm. You mentioned change as an opportunity, but in many ways, with that knowledge, it becomes an obligation, particularly if you're a flag-waving ocean conservationist who cares deeply about restoring the balance of the health of the ocean. 
you can't just then go and blindly chomp on a seafood hors d'oeuvre at a function, can you? Yeah. Well, you can, and people do, <laughs> because they have this thing called cognitive dissonance, where <laughs> they just don't want to change because they've been structured in this belief their whole life. Mm. And so you basically are admitting that your whole life was full of shit if you change something that you're parents parents taught them your parents did your parents taught to you so a lot of people just won't break that chain but we have to it's like it's like the health crisis that we have and people being morbidly obese more people per capita in australia and america than ever before and they say oh it's genetics my parents were fat it's not genetics that is ruining it's it's the pattern of your eating that has run through your families that is causing this, causing the heart disease, causing the diabetes, causing the cancers. And so it's just like that. We need to break the chain of what we've been doing because we know, we know, the scientists have told us we're on a one-way roll to climate collapse. And it's all because of these things that we know if we stop doing, that it ceases. So it doesn't take a, a scientist or an Einstein to figure out what we need to do. We just need people to do it. And it's not that bad. It's not like it's a horrible thing. Shit, if I can do it, if I can stop eating all the kangaroos and chickens in the world because I thought it gives you big muscles, then anyone can. You know, I was a, like trying to be the big tough guy, you know, army airborne, Navy clearance diver, gotta eat the chicken, gotta eat the kangaroos. And so if someone like me can see the error of my ways and want to do better and be better, then anyone can. It's not that hard, especially now. It's not, it's not expensive if you do it right, like people say. You're not going to suffer from malnutrition or lack of nutrients, like people say. And, and I, don't, I don't harp on like a lot of people about veganism and plant-based. I try to live by example. I try to, there's enough people doing that. What I try to do is live by example. I, I work out and I eat plants. And when people find that out and they go, but, but how? Like, you look so fit and healthy. And they're like, how old are you? I'm like, 44. And they're like, what? How? You don't look 44. I'm like, I know. Because I eat plants. I don't, eat, I don't consume death. <laughs> and so hopefully that sort of allows them to shift their perspective on what the plant-based lifestyle is like. Not just for themselves, but also to do good for the oceans and the planet. You know, it's, it's nothing but a win. Hmm. Yeah. Can you ever imagine if life had have transpired in a very different way and... From 2009, you continued a career in the Navy and could, could you still see a vision of yourself where you are such a passionate conservationist, where you are an advocate for plant-based living? Like, Could those two have just somehow find their way together no in idea, that bro. weird world? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know. I, I really don't look back at it. I don't, you know, I wouldn't change it either. Um, I, I don't know who that person would be. But I know who I am now, and I'm happy. Like, I, I've got a great sure. I've got to get up in the morning. I got to put my leg on. I got to put my arm on. You know, I get chafing rash on my groin area from my leg, which is not a place you want chafing and skin rubbing off. But it is whatever you know. I have a good life. I get paid to travel the world and have adventures with cool people and scientists and cameramen and celebrities, and I get to teach people about something that I deeply care about. And so, what have I got to complain about? Nothing. Man, I live such a good life. I'm a little slower. Whatever. People have real problems. You know, I just worked with a crew. One of the guy's daughters uh, is six years old and she's on a 24-hour feeding tube. And they've nearly gone uh, bankrupt twice this year because her disease is so rare that Medicare won't cover it. 
That's a real problem. So for me, I get to live this happy life. I get to help people out. I get to make change and hopefully make a difference to the planet. And so if I can do that, then man, my life is fulfilled and I don't give a shit who that guy would have been now because I know who I am. And we're happy you are who you are. Look, um, Paul, thank you so much for today. Um, I'll leave it to you for any final words or things that you wanted to speak about that we didn't get to or just where people can find out more about you. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram, just my name, Paul DeGelder. And I've just started a radio show with the wonderful Julia Wheeler, um, investigative journalist, uh, filmmaker, a champion freediver. It's called Dirt Down Under. And it's basically talking to amazing people like you. You're going to come on it. Uh, amazing people like um, we had Ali Tabrizi from Seaspiracy on we had Simon, uh, Hill. Simon Hill Jimmy Halfcut we've got Ocean Ramsey just a slew of amazing conservationists um, some well known some not well known but I feel like it's a space where the people making a lot of impact aren't being given a mainstream sort of opportunity to get their messages across in the in the wider realm of conservation across the globe. So that's what we're doing. It's actually a lot of fun. It's not it's not all doom and gloom, although there is a bit. We pretty much crack up laughing and crying every episode. It's something. I think yesterday Julia had us all in tears because I said something about uh, tofu and man boobs. And she, she just couldn't get the man boobs out of her mind. So we're all crying. You broke laughing. Julia. Yeah, we broke Julia. So there's that. Uh, I got the new book coming out around Shark Week, uh, Shark Week America, which is August. That's going to be called Uncaged. And uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff, man. Uh, I, I can't wait for the, this year. I'm about to go to Jupiter, Florida and film more sharks. Go and film Great Whites in the Neptune Islands. So make sure everyone watches Shark Week. Uh, it's going to be amazing this year. Awesome, mate. Well, uh, we'll keep watching and we'll keep being educated and inspired by you and all that you interact with. So thanks again for coming on the program. Cheers, bud.